Welcome to episode 10 of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Rachel Sieston. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Sakina Al-Haddad, and she's from Learning Futures at Griffith University. We chatted to Sakina about translating research into practice, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sakina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so this is going to be a slightly different episode in some ways, because for the three of us, we've all got similar sort of disciplinary backgrounds. We've come to this from a an experimental psychology perspective. So there are aspects of what we're going to talk about in this episode that I think we might agree on to a large extent. So what it would be interesting to hear is how you got across from this experimental psychology background into higher education. How did you come to all of this stuff? Yeah, so um, during my PhD, uh, which was in experimental psychology, I taught a lot. So all the way from the start to the PhD, I started not just tutoring, but also lecturing across multiple domains. And of course, well, not of course, but what, what I ended up with were the, I suppose, unsexy subjects like uh, research methods and statistics and biological psychology. And, you know, being a, a PhD candidate, you kind of get thrown into the deep end of, of teaching and so you had to learn a lot about learning and teaching to to be effective um, or at least to, to try to be effective um, in teaching those very difficult courses and I really really enjoyed that um, it was painful but also highly enjoyable <laughs> and so kept um, going down that path of learning and teaching and really learning a lot about learning and teaching in general. And um, one day saw that uh, El Felicio and Keithia Wilson were hiring and I thought, huh, you know, I'm at a point where I might want to perhaps take another step. And, you know, I, I know them by uh, reputation. Uh, I know that they sort of had this view of uh, viewing education from that social justice perspective. And I thought, huh, maybe I want to give this a go and see where this leads me to. So I did some professional work, actually, for a number of years, uh, post-lecturing, post-PhD, um, and then found myself now in this position um, at Learning Futures at Griffith, doing some work in learning innovation is my, my title, lecturer in learning innovation, but whatever, learning and teaching. Yeah. and academic development. That's, that's interesting because it, it kind of reflects partly the journey that I went through, I think. And one of the things that really stood out for me is that one of the main subjects I taught was this subject, learning and behaviour. Yeah. So the content of that course was very much about associative learning and, you know, those really highly controlled situations where rats are pressing levers and pigeons are roller skating and <laughs> things like that, right? And what I found is that the more that I got into the learning and teaching stuff, it, it just struck me how much of a mismatch there was in the ways that we think about learning from an experimental psychology and associative kind of perspective or paradigm and the way that it's thought about in a higher education perspective. And that's something that's really fascinated me ever since is that there seems to be such a mismatch. We might even be talking about the same terms, you know, things like feedback and, and it will mean totally different things in each of those contexts. So I guess broadly we want to talk in this episode about innovation and evaluation. Mm -hmm. So it's always good to sort of unpack that a little bit um, because I guess the three of us have a very distinct way of seeing it that isn't necessarily the way that higher education has traditionally thought about learning. 
Yeah. I suppose both of you are talking about the two hats that we all wear um, to a certain extent as a researcher who tries to understand learning or uh, understand how people think they learn and those sorts of things. And as a practitioner, as a teacher, and I suppose as a young tutor or even a more seasoned university lecturer mm. you st- you're faced you're faced with these questions of how to evaluate what you're doing uh, whether or not the kinds of things that you're doing in the classroom in your lecture uh, or the kinds of materials you're putting online are actually doing what you think they do whether they're improving learning whether students are interested in and engaged in the content that you're um, you're teaching and so on and so you talk a, a bit about this in your research the research practice nexus can you tell us a little bit more about that um, yeah, okay. The, the research practice nexus, as you say, um, I view it as something that is inextricably linked in my work, and as you probably find yourself in that position as well. And I think that is uh, the case for most in education, because what they do is also what they research, essentially. So they, they just essentially play the different roles of the researcher and the practitioner. Um, In health science, it's something that's taken a different role, that now they're talking about it as translational research. Um, And that's, I think, a result of a lot of uh, critical discourse in that area itself that really hasn't happened as much in education. That is, they've taken that inward self-reflection, you know, that this is about translational work, right, where you take the basic science and you translate it for practice, but that's just one part of it. The other part is um, identifying whether those basic science research in the translated process works in complexity, right? And that's the the challenges, I think, when you sit at that research practice nexus in trying to uncover very complex mechanisms in complex settings. Although I guess there's a side of all of this that we're, we're dealing with something that is complex in different ways than it, than it would be in a sort of health context. Yes. And I think particularly if you think take of a, a disease model mm-hmm. of medicine, you know, it's really about is this person sick or is this person well? Is this person alive or is this person dead? Mm-hmm. You know, so I know that that's an oversimplification to a large extent. But what we're talking about with learning, we can't really necessarily even pin down you know, so we were talking uh, earlier a little bit about this idea of graduate attributes and what, you know, what does that actually mean? They become these really broad and kind of amorphous things that are really difficult to pin down. So if that's the sort of thing that we're starting to try and aim for, it creates a really difficult problem for us to know because the outcomes aren't as clear as what we think they might be often. You know, what does this learning actually look like that we're having our students get? That's right. And I think that all, all of those various domains of learning are all important, right? They just can't be researched at one goal at one time. So it's, it's that it's like that single variable fallacy. And you get this a lot with terms like engagement, for instance, right? Where there is an expectation that yeah, this is one entity that operates in the same way, but really uh, encompasses a multi-dimensional, you know, complex network of processes. And so I think part of it is perhaps starting out by narrowing down what it is that you're looking at. So for instance, if you're going graduate attributes, for what level and for what purpose and for what outcome, right? And unpack each of those at the particular smaller level as well. So you can bring it down to very micro levels all the way to macro levels and investigate it in different ways. 
to piece very different parts of the puzzle later on as well. It's just not possible to investigate all things all at once with the same methodologies or same lenses put to that. Does this come down to the sorts of things that you've talked about in terms of uh, defining your research question really well and nuancing your research question? And so if you are interested, for example, in how um, the use of videos affects uh, or supplementing your course material with the use of videos affects learning outcomes, you might also then um, define that a little bit further and, and have a look at how that effect of videos interacts with other variables, other person variables, like their prior experience in the content area or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to um, really exemplify that because even in one classroom for one class, you've got multiple things going on at the same time. You've got multiple learning outcomes that you're aiming for as well. And if you put someone in a position where they now have to evaluate every single thing in that class, is just practically not possible, <laughs> you know, one exactly. with workload, but also, you know, it's a lot of diminishing returns um, in terms of, of conducting effective applied research. Yeah. And so if you narrow it down that way, then you not only get to answer or at least get better insights on one thing in that particular time, but at the same time, you're considering yeah. the extraneous factors to what you are investigating at the same time in yeah. designing the research, but also later on in making appropriate inferences out of that as well. Right. And so when you do communicate that complexity, others then can benefit from that communication dissemination in that way such that they can determine for themselves as to how generalizable that is to their own yeah. context which is you know is you know it's, it's not equally complex yeah, yeah. and i suppose in a, in a day and age where being able to reproduce uh, research findings is becoming more and more um, important and uh, more and more a part of the conversation being able to define not just your research question clearly but also what you what you did what the what the context of your experiment was and what statistics you used and so on is is really important do you use things like the open science framework or do you have any sort of examples of how we can communicate no, I like what's happening in psychology. Yeah. Not really biased at all. <laughs> what's happening in psychology, and really it came out of psychology then being self-critical as a discipline, right, of the, the research practices. And I like what's happening now where um, you do have a bit more of an open science collaborative network, uh, not just in how you conduct research, but also how that research is then built upon and communicated. Um, so things like even having an open share of data <laughs> show data um, and uh, being able to really uh, not scrutinize but I suppose hold you more accountable to a higher uh, quality of research mm -hmm. from the get-go yeah and I suppose at the heart of this as well is is being able to generalize our research findings back to the classroom in some way I did want to come back to some of the things that you were you kind of touched on earlier in terms of internal and external validity. So understanding uh, what's driving an effect in the classroom or particular kinds of learning outcomes in the classroom and how you might go about teasing that apart in a study in education versus how you go about making things look like what they do in the classroom and understanding how uh, how people learn in an actual classroom environment. Yeah, um, so that one's really a complex one. <laughs> And, you know, I'm still getting my head around that. <laughs> so that's one of those things that I think 
where I am right now is that I think about it in terms of like a bivariate relationship, but where both exists on a continuum and you can be anywhere in that combination of continuum. And it's really a, a dependence or either dependence or result of the combination of the questions being asked, uh, where it's being conducted. So the, the context in which uh, the research has been conducted and the experimental paradigm. Right. Right. And so I think for research in the wild, so to speak, in the classroom, there is always some degree of uh, control that mm -hmm. is when a teacher designs a class that's already exiting, uh, already exhibiting some kind of control uh, on the context such that it's not completely wild, right? So it exists, this naturalistic uh, event of learning in that context exists within a semi-constrained environment in some way. It's not as controlled as what you'll get in the lab, <laughs> for instance, yeah. right? But there is still some controls there. And I think those contextual constraints are what would constrain the generalizability as a function of that external validity, mm. right? Um, but the other is you do also have some uh, degree of internal validity, of course, not as much as what you would get in uh, a lab setting, right? So I really like the stuff that we do out of the lab um, because it serves a specific purpose that is we want to get into some underlying mechanisms of learning, whichever aspects of learning, or not just learning, even just attention mechanisms, for instance, where it's just not possible to research in the wild. You know, it's just not practical at all. You will not be able to isolate those mechanisms in such complex settings, no matter how much you try to control that environment. And so sort of having that degree of internal and external validity is just, for me now, it's just part of the norm of all research in education yeah. and learning science that helps us all. <laughs> so there's a, there's a tension here, I think, between on the one hand, you're aiming for this rigor where you mm. can start to actually pin these things down and try and make sure that you understand what the cause and effect relationship is. And then the other side is this, is this notion of, of relevance. So one of the things where I always get a bit stuck on this is that the sorts of things that we do in an experimental psychology context, we tend to look at quite contained sorts of processes. You know, they happen over, uh, you know, a few minutes at most. Yes. You know, if you start to bring psychophysiology or cognitive neuroscience into it, we're looking at things that happen over much shorter time spans, you know, milliseconds and seconds and that, that sort of level. I think the tricky thing for me is then how do you take something that's happening in such a contained way and start to translate that up through multiple levels of analysis to something that looks like what happens in a real life classroom? Because I think there is something about each step in that process for, of going up that there's almost like some sort of emergent properties. It, it's not like you can take something that is contained like that and immediately scale it up in terms of complexity because every layer up then adds all of these extra dimensions and variables, which means that you can be less certain that the kind of thing that you're seeing um, cause some sort of effect under those control conditions is still going to work at that higher level. So it seems to me there's always that sort of tension as to where the best point is to try and make sense of this. Where is that driven by research design? Where can we make sort of inferences about um, principles as opposed to cause and effect, as opposed to parameters that might help us when we're actually teaching or design parameters or whatever. It, it always strikes me as a difficult thing to, to try and manage that translation. Yeah, 
I think, yes, it's difficult, but it's also really exciting, right? Because um, you, you get to these findings that seems relatively more clear cut. And it, it is because of the controls that you've got there and because um, the, the research is so well defined um, and that, you know, if you're looking at attention, you're not, you're not just looking at attention, you're looking at a specific uh, sensory modality for a specific aspect of attention, you know, within a certain condition and stuff like that. And so when, when you're translating, you know, for, for us, I think in the experimental side, because we come from that, it's relatively easier to translate that up, as you say, scale up to mm. uh, a, a more general uh, learning environment. So, you know, what does the difference of 500 milliseconds between conditions even mean practically? <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, it improved recall by 15%. So what? <laughs> right. So how do you answer that? So what question? And I think um, like for me with attention, for instance, uh, it might go into what you were saying with uh, design factors, right? So it might be a fundamental consideration, but it might not be something that you then manipulate or uh, even sort of attempt to measure, so to speak, in the wild, right? But it is a fundamental thing that you borrow from the research about, you, you know, what you know about what it means uh, to be able to, or what are the factors that uh, sort of helps or hinders the capacity limitations in the classroom, do that as fundamental basis uh, of, okay, this is what I want to do such that my students are in fact paying attention to this, therefore subsequently all of my learning interventions or whatever design uh, can then be uh, investigated more effectively, so to speak, right? Because if they're not even paying attention, then what are you measuring? <laughs> anyway, post that. I like what's happening out of the testing effect uh, literature in particular, and that's, you know, really rose out of experimental psychology in cognitive science, essentially, and the, that's one of the things where the findings are about a percent recall thing, you know, mm. and one of the first few studies were things really quite random, you know, so learning Swahili words, what sort of relevance does that have for the classroom, but that was necessary to learn about the mechanisms of retrieval practice and that was really effective in helping us understand that and so i think what they've done for that particular domain was that the communication in translation was pretty effective right so speaking about it in a construct level that makes sense to teachers but then for teachers to then implement a similar type of concept and test it in the classroom yeah. now that you have a more complex system what does it actually pan out to be so, and i guess a lot of that really depends on the teacher being able to make informed decisions about how this kind of principle that we're seeing that comes out of the lab might actually translate to something that they can use in practice and that's where i often find the, the process starts to fall down a little bit because we're really relying on the teachers to be able to say i understand my context i understand my students i understand the kind of content that we we need them to try and understand the sorts of learning outcomes that we're aiming for for them to achieve so when we go out and say here's this new effect and this thing that we're finding in the lab mm -hmm. they've got to really make the decision about how it's going to work best in that context and that's where i think it is there's quite a tricky negotiation there to get from that level of principle to something that really works in a deep way in practice that's right i, I agree with that completely so you know if you were to think about retrieval practice and in attempts to translate that in principle it is about quizzing <laughs> Right. Um, and so you think, OK, so in higher education, what are we really talking about here? It's, it's assessment. Right. But in a formative sense. And so for for effective translation, we can't just go, OK, so, we'll, you know, if we simply get them to 
keep testing themselves, will that work? That's on a very low level, right? But if you think, okay, so what do we know about assessment design that enhances learning? How do we integrate these two? You know, so it's more about how do we then integrate the, the two very, not very disparate, but somewhat disparate literature together in practice. And I think that at the research nexus is the toughest thing to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you are, you're taking a risk. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, from this side of, uh, well, from one, one end of that research, in the basic science research, it tells you something about the underlying mechanism of retrieval practice. And then in uh, a real classroom, you know that your design and other factors of design for learning has an impact on not just learning itself, but also how students engage with it whether they're even motivated to do that, they, they all affect the potential outcome as well, you know? And so, yeah, it's incredibly yeah. difficult, but it, I feel like it just, it needs to be done. Yeah. Don't know what the system can do to accommodate things like this because it will take longer, you know, for, for the researcher to do it in practice. Do you think one of the things that testing effect uh, researchers have done quite well is provide instantiations of what that might look like in practice in, in K-12 classrooms all the way through to higher education? So in higher education, for example, you might distribute um, quizzes throughout your semester uh, rather than having a single high stakes exam at the end. And that's fairly easy for most uh, university lecturers, I think, to conceptualise within their own courses because it is so general. Mm -hmm. And from what you've you guys have just been talking about, I think one of the things it comes down to is this problem of uh, going from really general evidence uh, and general information about about the processes of retrieval practice or the processes of attention and then inferring how that how that can help us in a one single case type scenario I mean the analogy is in law how do they how do they rely on uh, how do how does a judge or a, or a jury rely on scientific evidence uh, when they're trying to make a decision in a particular case as, as to whether or not um, somebody is guilty of a crime and I think it's similar in education um, and also in medicine uh, you know a doctor trying to diagnose a particular patient from their bank of knowledge of a whole series of other cases this the, the problem seems to be going from the general to to the specific mm -hmm. do you think instances instantiations can help with that to an extent yeah. i think um so why i say that is is because there always has to be a degree of clinical judgment i call it but really it's not it's not clinic, i don't know what the word is in this domain right so like what a clinician might do it yeah. still requires some kind of a clinical judgment of relevance for their context right so um all of these things about the having multiple low stakes as opposed to one single high stakes yeah. exam and whatnot um, translates really well to content heavy disciplines, yeah. but not others, for instance. And so to determining how relevant particular research evidence is for your practice still requires clinical judgment. And then to understand um, how to then incorporate it in their design for learning again requires that clinical judgment and decision making about how relevant it is but also there's a practical decision of what am I able to achieve yeah you know that's really a, on a very practical level I have you know two days yeah that's true <laughs> to time this. constraints yeah um, yeah so what's the the best thing that I can do in this given time for 
maximum impact yeah. in my particular context. Yeah. And that's a very difficult judgment to make, yeah, I think. But I think it gets better as you go. And instantiations can help to yeah. an extent, especially if they can uh, accommodate a wider range of, of complex uh, environments. Yeah. But at the moment, I don't see that as really still quite narrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it is tricky because mm. just one instantiation in and of itself is not going to be particularly useful because classrooms and courses and all sorts of things can vary um, in all sorts of ways from one classroom to the next. And so oddly, in, in, in some ways, more externally valid research if you were to see how testing impacts learning in your particular course it, that's less generalizable in fact um, than than uh, controlling for some of those context variables in your research but far more useful yeah yeah that's it <laughs> in, in your class. class in your yeah, class yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah yeah that's it and so like for for the practitioner I suppose or not you know not practitioners person but when you you put on that practitioner hat you think okay so if I'm going to seek out yeah the research literature how do I seek out the relevant research for my context yeah that's tricky yeah yeah I think there's another side to that so if we flip all of this on its head yeah. and we know that one of the big frustrations with a lot of people who are teaching in higher education is that one of the really only indicators we often have of how how good a job we're doing is student evaluations, right? So here we are with, that we've got all of this great research that's going on that tells us all of these fundamental things about learning and we've got all this neuroscience and all this cool stuff. So on the one hand, that might be able to inform us as practitioners if we're careful and we think about what it looks like in our context. What does it look like the other way around to you? So if I'm, I'm here and I've got within my context here, I want to try and understand whether or not what I'm doing or if I change something is actually having an impact on student learning and I want to use something more than student evaluations to do that. What do you think the kind of options are to, to think about it from that side? So that's, that's a difficult one because it's one that I'm living at the moment in, in um, designing professional learning for, for evaluative practices and learning and teaching. And difficult to do because of a large base of differences in exposure to educational research paradigms. Right? And so because the starting point is just hugely different across disciplines, let's just put it that way, because if you're trying to do something at an institutional level, you can have an educator who's really good in their discipline and teaching in that domain-specific discipline um, evaluation of learning is a completely different ballgame that is, you know, so if you're really good, say, at teaching chemistry and you might be doing um, cellular research, you're not really researching human behavior. It's a different thing again. So conceptualizations of variance in human behavior is a new concept that you know, I think sometimes it's overlooked. So uh, all of these different research methodologies, you know, whether it be like questionnaire design or even assessment design comes with its own limitations and strengths. Um, but making that judgment or expecting an educator to make that judgment without that training is actually really difficult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I suppose another element of this is that students perceptions are not always mm -hmm. going to map onto or the perceptions of their own learning don't always map onto how they actually learn Absolutely. 
Yeah. How does that fit into how we evaluate uh, learning in, in yeah, higher education? Yes, that's a really good point because um, I, I've heard of more more dissing about student perceptions recently than I ever have before. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't subscribe to any particular methodology, right? So I think what's most appropriate for your research question. And the thing is, we know that the learners as a being, they learn as a result of so many different things. All these factors, uh, whether they perceive uh, some kind of satisfaction with the learning environment will affect it as well, you know, even yeah. if we don't want to think about it, it does affect it. It affects their motivation to learn and all of that are still systemic in sort of conceptualizing how they learn. So even if we sort of think about, okay, learning as performance and we know that learning as performance is something that uh, learners generally are pretty poor at and there's pretty robust research in showing that, then perhaps in terms of quantifying learning, perhaps don't rely on yeah. measures of learning, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. But if you want to know about um, their personal experiences and their personal expectations and motivations and goals, then it's perfect perfectly legitimate it's that the right level of then yes exactly well, and it's really the only way you can do exactly. it right yeah exactly in some of ways you can yeah. go like this yeah. but you know <laughs> could we restructure student evaluations uh so that they address questions like what activities students engaged in what learning strategies students are using during their learning process that would be indicative of of good learning with that with, for lack of a better word um yes uh, I'm a big proponent of convergence in measurements, right? Because um, you try and get at as many relevant and uh, important, depending on your research question, dimensions of learning um, as you conduct your evaluation research. And so, you know, things like learning strategies, uh, something that I know a lot of researchers also use, particularly if they're interested in self-regulated learning. Um, how they go about questioning that will uncover different insights, right? So if we ask, uh, if we simply ask what they do um, without sort of going further than that, then we're trying to infer on the basis of their self-reports of the behaviors that they're engaging in those tasks effectively without convergence in some way uh, to assess the actual impact of engagements with other, with those activities. Yep. And and we know this uh, at varying levels, even say on a simplest level, um, I'll use the example that's not learning because I think it's an easier analogy, going to the gym, mm. right? A single exercise of uh, doing a squat, for instance, we know that squats will, you know, sort of on a very simple, basic level, um, improve your, your muscles, uh, in a particular part of your body, right? <laughs> and so on and so forth. But we know that depending on the technique um, of the sports, then different people will benefit differently out of those things. Mm -hmm. And similarly with the learning strategies as well, simply stating that they engage in retrieval practice, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, does not guarantee that they're going to benefit from that, right? So it's yeah. how have they engaged with that? Um, what are the strategies within that strategy yeah. um, that they've done? So these are things about, um, say, formation of habit, understanding uh, the 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 uh, translation of behaviors to that of their learning goals, and so on and so forth, and vice versa as well. So I think there is a complex network of things and depending on what it is that you're asking about, 
and how we converge those measures at different parts of the, the learning trajectory, so to speak, to help us understand that the best is the best way to go. So, so multiple measurements. Yeah. yeah. So does this, one of the other areas that you've been working in over the last few years is in learning analytics. So mm -hmm. do you see that as being part of the equation of this sort of convergence and triangulation across multiple measures? How, how does the learning analytics bit fit into this? The learning analytics bit is an interesting one. It depends on how you define learning analytics. How would you define so, it? Mm, <laughs> um, if, if I define find it as the source of measure because sometimes it's you know we know learning analytics is sometimes referred to interchangeably um, as a verb and a noun and a field <laughs> so it's quite complicated and so it really depends on what they are referring to at that particular point in time so let's say it's the source of data um, so digital data if that's the case then that would help answer some questions for some people um, depending on what how it's being used right so at the very simplest level looking at uh, digital data from an lms for instance if you do use the lms then yeah that would be useful but trying to then make inferences about uh that digital data depending on whatever you've the questions that you've got um in a justifiable way without making all the claims is is the key right so a lot of i think uh benefits that learning analytics now offer is that uh, it provides insights into a domain that used to be this black box right so we particularly in more uh, blended learning type environments where you know you've got a combination of face-to-face -face and online so you go to your lecture or tutorials or whatnot you know you can you can see you have you have cues <laughs> behavioral cues that is uh, visually <laughs> identifiable um, and you use that information, that's data for the, the teacher, right? You use that information to inform um, how the students are perhaps experiencing the learning at that point in time, mm. right? So you look for detection of uh, perhaps confusion, for instance, in their face, and you use that to inform what you do next. Um, and then when they go online, you have no idea what's happening there whatsoever. This black box. I assume that they're reading it. You know, I email them. It goes into this ether of of nothingness, and then there's an assumption that that has one reached them. To uh, they've engaged with it in some on on some level, and then I'm gonna now assess them because I've assumed that they have actually done work right? um, on that basis. Now, what learning analytics offers is some insight into that black box, but just on that engagement level. So really still at this moment, you know, depending on how it's being used, if it's outside of an experimental context, then it's difficult to make any further, uh, more in-depth inferences about yeah. learning. Because it's a really tricky thing. So if you take the example that you've just talked about, for a teacher to be able to process what's going on in a classroom and be able to detect a confusion face, for example. Like we know that there are so many processes that go on in the brain in order for yes. us to be able to identify that and, and meaningfully act on it. You know, when you try to code that into algorithms, that becomes an immensely complicated task, <laughs> yeah. right? So it seems to me there's sort of a, a, a real difficulty here in how we can use these kind of crude ways of understanding what's happening, you know, pressing on buttons and watching videos and doing things like that to try and make inferences that we make kind of really intuitively but are actually massively complicated, right? That's right. It's a measure that actually comes with a greater degree of uncertainty than any other measure of, of, of learning that you've got, right? It's, it's unsystematic uncertainty that you cannot 
it's, it's well, it's not you cannot, but it's difficult yeah. to pinpoint. But is, better than nothing. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's true yeah. as well. Is, is, and is there ways to, or are there ways to build in some systematic approaches in learning learning analytics research? So can you build in a control or, or comparison or have an A-B testing sort of scenario set up with MOOCs, for example, um, with an online course where you have one group of learners doing a MOOC that looks one way and another group of learning learners doing the same MOOC that looks slightly different and then compare the learning analytics across those two? Yeah, so I see um, the approach of teaching as design is fitting this really well, right? Yeah. So it's how we conceptualize design and conceptualize uh, time and contexts in the, the design process for evaluation. So the example that you gave would be uh, that A-B testing type of thing is uh, a comparative thing that is across um, a change um, yeah. in the design or a change in the context or the mode of delivery and so on and so forth. But it can also be across time, right? Yeah. That time itself is yeah. the, the design point as well. So it becomes more repeated measures rather than, yeah. well, that's still repeated measures as well. It could be mixed design. Anyway, yeah. um, it's reconceptualizing time that now you can do on a more flexible way because the analytics is more available, more readily available. So your conceptualization of evaluation time points does not necessarily have to be at the start and the end, it can be multiple points in between and look at a trajectory of change along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Is it a little bit crude to think of experimental learning research and learning analytics research and evaluation, uh, student evaluation, student experience type research as different camps? Are there any, can you see a way to integrate those different approaches? Not in research. Um, but as practitioners, it's all part of the same puzzle that they have to make sense of. And so much like uh, understanding the learner as a being where, you know, they encompass all of these things is the same way in the educator in trying to understand learning and teaching. Um, that is, all of those things are valid parts of the pies. And if you do not look at any of those, then you're missing out pieces of a puzzle yeah and synthesizing those things are extremely challenging but i think it is worth the time doing yeah definitely so i guess one way that we could start to address some of those puzzle pieces if you like to extend on the metaphor mm. or maybe mangle it is to is to think about people who are coming from different disciplinary backgrounds and how they can you know work together in a sort of transdisciplinary way where it's not just about I'm, I'm going to work with you and we're going to think about these things for our own thing, but it's more about something that really synthesizes across those different ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that that's the way that we need to go with all of this? Is that the way to you know, start yeah. to overcome and bring all those puzzle pieces together? Well, yes, I think that's happening for not just education, but multiple disciplines, you know, where to move forward, um, you know, what good is research if we're not, making the human condition better in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And so everyone's trying to work towards this same ultimate goal in some way, except that the, at the moment, a lot of people understand and acknowledge that interdisciplinary research is the way to go, perhaps in a transdisciplinary way, because they're all ways of knowing, right? But how do we um, approach that practically 
is the challenge, right? So even uh, earlier on in this conversation, we spoke of just very, very, very related uh, disciplines that is psychology and education, where they use the same terms, meaning completely different things. I mean, even within the psychology discipline, <laughs> you have that as well, right? So how do we communicate uh, inter interdisciplinarily in a research project such that we are able to move that forward? Because now that we are able to approach that, um, trying to uncover or solve this one question with multiple perspectives, which is always useful, and we've always known this, right? But how do we do that effectively? where we don't share the same language. Particularly, I guess, in our context where our disciplines are so clearly defined mm. and you know structured in that very traditional sort of style, like, well, I guess that's starting to break down to an extent. But it almost adds an extra layer of complexity because not only are there the issues around the kinds of research questions that we've got and the different ways that we might think about learning, but there's also that interface with the disciplines themselves. You know, it's different teaching in a law context than it is in architecture or physiotherapy or whatever it might be. So it, it's a really interesting mix of multiple different ways of thinking about um, both learning and the content yes. itself. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, it, it stretches us for that. It's difficult to do. It stretches, out and it stretches us intellectually, and I think that's always a good thing. But the other challenge with that is, I think you're alluding to as well, is the issue of identity. Right. That is often when we get trained in a particular discipline and domain, we form that as part of our academic identity. And with that comes uh, some biases and also just preferences in general for our own methodology. How do we communicate with in, an interdisciplinary group towards a research project um, that, you know, uh, might look at one thing, but there's so many different ways of testing it not just understanding it it's this issue of breadth versus depth yeah. as a new researcher do you want to you know learn all of these different methodological methodological approaches or uh, understand how people learn across all of these different disciplines or do you go deep into one discipline and just using one set of methodologies I mean, for example if you were to um, learn how to model learning that seems like a huge learning curve and many many years of of practice and, and research and learning involved and so it, it seems like that the struggle is balancing that breadth and depth as researchers yeah, yeah. i think the other thing is um with with that one of the things that um i've kind of noticed in in the discipline as well is that there's a lot of um dichotomizing of uh Conceptualizations of, uh, conceptualizations of things. So even like breadth and depth, for instance, right, where these things uh, do exist to a degree. Um, and I think it helps to an extent in making them binary, right, like this research and practice, where really for a lot of people it's the same thing. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's useful to an extent, but then I think when we come down to... Um, particularly when coming down to uh, inter interdisciplinary approaches, having more like cognitive flexibility and um, sort of thinking about things in degrees and likelihoods and probabilities rather than sort of binary yes or no, does this fit into that? And, you know, sort of like this matches that or mismatches that. I think that is a start to helping us cope with the flexibility that we might need, I think, in approaching <laughs> this interdisciplinary 
uh, research yeah. Yeah. in education. It almost sounds like uh, when we had the conversation with Peter Goodyear in an earlier episode, mm -hmm. and he was talking about this idea of epistemic fluency, where it's 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 a bit like that. You've got this. Yeah you're comfortable with moving between the different ways of thinking about the, the problem, which I guess for the three of us is something that we've had to sort of start to traverse because experimental psychology is quite some distance <laughs> yes. from yes. what happens in a, in a classroom in higher education. Yet to an extent, certainly I found that I was overconfident in what I knew about learning and how I could apply that to this new context and it didn't really work out all that well. <laughs> So it took a long time for me to develop those habits of being able to think about these problems from, from these multiple different perspectives. Yes, that's a great term, epistemic fluency. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> so we should get out of the lab more. <laughs> Something like that. Mix it up a bit more. Wait, that sounds like... <laughs> so one of the things we always like to do at the end of these episodes is to ask you, what are you excited about? What are you working on? What, what do you think is um, something that you're really keen to... Take it into and see how it all pans out. So what's really interesting to me at the moment, which is, which also seems like a big gap in, in the research, and partly again, it's part of that research ne nexus uh, that I am living at the moment in professional learning for learning analytics, um, is understanding the processes uh, that educators engage in. So underlying processes, cognitive, socio-emotional, uh, you know, identity, whatever it might be, um, in in learning about learning analytics for their learning and teaching practice. So if we think about the developing academic as a 21st century educator, which, you know, if we think about how education is going, there's a lot more of an online component, at least. What does it mean to be able to understand ways of using digital data along with other data sources that they might be more used to. But what does that also mean in their approaches uh, to evaluating learning and teaching? So for instance, if we use that teaching is design as uh, a means of approaching evaluation, then how does this change their conceptualization of time as a means of repeated measure, mm. for instance? And it's just one of those things. So yeah, just really understanding the underlying processes in the developing academic, in developing learning analytics literacy. Yeah. Well, it sounds like something that you might um, need a little bit of time to work through. It I sounds like quite them, a complex yeah. problem, but something that will keep you um, out of trouble for a Didn't think it's time. Not that yeah. I've ever been in trouble, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for being on the podcast, Akina. It, it was a great discussion. Thank you.